You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, so we've been studying 1 Peter. Last week we kicked off chapter 1 and we saw Peter was talking about God's rescue. You know, he talked about this new life that we now have because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's risen from the dead. He talks about the new beginning, the new birth. He says, now you are different. And this week, he's going to build on that idea. What Peter's going to tell us is he says, since you are different, then the way you live should be different. In fact, tonight he says multiple times in this passage, this command, be holy. Holy means distinct or different or unique. We talked about that last week. Be holy, he says. And now I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking, okay, so God wants me to be weird. And it's unfortunate that when we think of Christians, we often think of weird. Because some Christians, they take God's call to be different as a call to be weirdos. Just look at the way some Christians dress. Look at this t-shirt. It looks like a Budweiser t-shirt, right? Well, upon closer examination, you'll see this is not a Budweiser t-shirt, but a Bloodweiser. <laughs> the wise men knew his blood is for you. The king of kings, not the king of beers. Why, why are we doing this, Christians? Good Lord. Is that a ketchup shirt? Because, you know, everybody's wearing ketchup shirts these days, right? No, catch up with Jesus. Let us praise and relish him. Maybe the worst part, because he loves me from my head to my toes. Just when he can't get any cornier, we're throwing dad jokes into these Christian t-shirts. Is that a Tide shirt? Nope. Jesus gets the tough sin out. The Home Depot? No, the Holy Spirit. You can do it. He will help. (laughs) Is that a call of duty? No, called for duty. Army of the Lord. (laughs) What about this fine gentleman? Dr. Terry Watkins and his scientific article about why rock and roll music is of the devil. Would you like to hear what Terry has to say? Yeah, I bet you do. The article is called, Is Music Neutral? The first line of his article, no! (laughs) I just want to say ahead of time, all the capital letters in this article are all Terry's. None of those were added by me, okay? (laughs) Terry writes... In fact, music influences and manipulates us more than we know. The scientist Dorothy Retilak, perhaps you've heard of her, she played the music of Led Zeppelin and Vanilla Fudge to one group of vegetables. Beans, squash, corn, morning glory, and coleus. She also played contemporary avant-garde atonal music to a second group and as a control played nothing to a third group. Within 10 days, the plants exposed to Led Zeppelin and Vanilla Fudge were all leaning away from the speaker. After three weeks, they were stunted and dying. The beans exposed to the new music leaned 15 degrees from the speaker, and they were found to have middle-sized roots. The plants left in silence had the longest roots and grew the highest. Further, it was discovered that the plants to which placid devotional Christian music was played 
not only grew two inches taller than the plants left in silence, but they also leaned toward the speaker. In the end, all the plants next to the rock music died. Do you still think music is neutral? Rock music, not the lyrics, just the music has been scientifically proven to literally kill. And some Christians actually believe the giver of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the author of rock and roll. Amen? So, you know, that's not the kind of different we're talking about here, all right? A lot of, honestly, a lot of Christians, they're actually like our culture in all the wrong ways. Completely obsessed with money, completely autonomous, broken relationships. And then they're different from culture in all the weird ways, like the, the weird things they wear, and they don't listen to normal music and watch normal movies and all that stuff. And God's like, that's not the kind of difference that I'm talking about. Now, in 1 Peter 1, Peter says, God wants Christians to be different in a good way. All right? And he says, he gives us really four reasons for that. He says, for one, because we live in a unique era, and we'll talk about that. It's because we're headed for a unique destination. Peter says, it's because our God is totally unique, and because he's given us a unique identifier the call to love. That's what should set us apart as different. Let's look at each one of these, starting in verse 10. Peter tells us we live in a unique era in the history of salvation, in the history of the human race. Peter, you know, he was talking about God's salvation in verses one through nine, and he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All right, so he refers to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. This was a group of dozens of men and women um, in the Old Testament. These prophets wrote 39 Old Testament books. We've got these recorded in our Bibles here. And they, they told people, they told the people of God, you know, the, the Old Testament was a time when God was working primarily through the people of Israel. These were Jewish prophets. And uh, they told people what God thought they needed to know, like God's original design for humanity, for this world, that it was designed to be a good place, a perfect place, without evil and sin and sickness and all that stuff. Um, but it also tells us about humans' rebellion. We rebelled against God. We broke our, ourselves. We broke our world. And um, through threw a, you know, complete just black smear across this good world that God has made. But it also tells us of God's rescue plan from the very beginning. God knew this was going to happen before we did it. And from the very beginning, God had, had a plan that he was revealing to rescue, to redeem humanity. We also see an elaborate system of symbolic sacrifices laid out. You know, God said from the first pages of Scripture, sin, which is just moral wrongdoing, doing, rebellion against God. He says sin brings death. And so he set up a system of animal sacrifice where you would bring a, a flawless, unblemished animal to a priest, and that animal would be slain. And... The worshiper would understand, that should have been me. This unblemished animal, this lamb, for example, is dying in my place. And so God was teaching the people, sin is really bad. I'm not just looking the other way. Something's got to be done about it. An innocent substitute must take your place. Of course, an animal can't substitute for a human. It also tells us that God would one day send the promised one. He begins to predict the promised one right on the heels of when humans rebelled against God. And he makes a series of predictions 
This would be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. We read in Daniel 7, Daniel says, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world. His rule is eternal. It will never end. And so we see expanding out beyond just the Jewish people who God was focused on in the Old Testament. We see a salvation going to the whole world. We see a rule of goodness going over the entire world and that rule will never end. Somehow this is a son of man and yet he's an eternal being. Very strange figure. The Old Testament prophets also predicted a suffering servant. We see predictions like this one in the book of Isaiah. It says, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. His life will be made an offering for sin. Yes, this suffering servant lives this tragic life, used, abused, and finally murdered by people, even though he was totally innocent. And then the prophets start to make connections between this, this sacrificial system of animals, where an animal symbolically substitutes for a human sinner, And then it starts talking about this suffering servant actually taking on the sins of humanity. God says, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. He's carrying the wrongdoing of humanity. It's falling upon him. He's being crushed as an offering. Well, this is very confusing to the prophets. They get little snippets here, little snippets there, little visions, dreams. You know, it's, it said the prophets, they didn't understand everything they were, they were writing. They made careful searches and inquiries. They were seeking to know. They wanted to know. On the one hand, we're predicting sufferings. On the other hand, we're predicting glories. You know, we've got an eternal king. We've got a suffering servant. How does it all fit together? You know, at one point, the prophet Daniel says, I heard what God said, but I didn't understand what he meant. And so he asks. And you know what God says? Go now, Daniel, for what I've said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. God plainly says, there's some things that I'm keeping secret. There's a mysterious element to this whole thing. The suffering servant, the eternal king, the sufferings and the glories, the the sacrifice, the, the death and yet the living forever. How does it all fit together? How could they know? Who's the eternal king? Who's the suffering servant? Well, how could they have possibly known that Jesus Christ is both the eternal king and the suffering servant? That the promised one would not just be any old human. No, it would be actually God, the son, would come down voluntarily to this world. He'd be born in a manger, in a poor family. He is the one who would suffer even though he had done no wrong. He is the one who would be killed He is the one who would rise and ascend to heaven waiting for that perfect moment when he will come back and set up his kingdom. Yes, the prophets, they didn't know this. They couldn't have known this. They couldn't have put all the pieces together because this was hidden deep in the heart of God. In fact, Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Yes, it was pointing forward. They were serving us. They were looking ahead to our era We are the fortunate ones. We are the blessed ones that get to live during this time when we see the plan of God. He says, you and these things, they've now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Yes, it wasn't just the prophets who were confused, the prophets who were amazed by this. The angels themselves. 
You know, Peter says they are stunned as they look into these things. They are amazed. They are staring at us. You know, the angels, as they saw God send his son down to earth as a baby, the angels were all just staring around like. And then when he, he grew up, it lived perfectly righteously, but, but just as a poor man with no glory, the angels are like. Their jaws are on the ground. And then when they saw him abused, tortured, killed, the angels, they were just like. And then when he rose from the dead and he, and he ascended into heaven, after telling his followers, go into the whole world and tell people what God has done for you, that God loves you. The angels just like. For 2,000 years, their jaws have been on the ground. Their mouths are hanging wide open. They long to look into these things. They're fascinated by these things. And as they look, they're learning things about God, about his justice, about his love, about how he treats rebels. And, and the extent that he goes to, not to sweep it under the rug, but to, to die, to love. God is love. And God is redeeming a people for himself. Yes, the angels look on in disbelief, Peter tells us. We live in this totally unique time, Peter says. They can't believe he would do this for us. He says, you're, you're privileged. You live in a unique time with a unique knowledge. How could we not, how could this not affect the way that we live? How could we not be different in light of this? God has now commissioned us to go and tell people about this awesome news about what he's like. So Peter says, you live in a unique era. This is one of the, the things that makes you different. And this is one of the things that should lead to different kind of behavior. Yes. He also says we have a unique destination. A unique destination. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, keeping sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, your hope. And, and the Bible uses the word hope in context like this, not like hope, like I sure hope that'll happen, but as uh, expectation, as certain anticipation. We know it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And so he says, fix it on the hope to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, he talked in chapter one, verse five, about this salvation that's ready to be revealed. You know, he talks about, you know, we have this inheritance that, that's stored up for us. And, and pretty soon Christ is gonna come back. And he is going to bring us to heaven and he's going to remake the earth and we're going to live here on a remade earth with him. You know, 1 John chapter 3 says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. You know, you are only a dim shadow of the being that you will one day be. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be, we will be like him, we'll be transformed. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. There's our word purify. That's that same word for holy, to make different, same root word. And uh, what it's saying here is one day God, Christ is going to show up. He's going to give you a new body. You're going to live in a new world. And when Christ appears, you will be transformed. You will still be you, but you will be a transformed you, a renewed you. You have a new body that can never die, can never grow old, can never get sick. And it says that having our hope fixed on that, constantly looking ahead to the future, 
return of Christ, that will purify us now. That will have an effect on our life right now. That's the same thing Peter is saying here. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like when you're driving your car and if you're looking down at the road right in front of you, you're going to be swerving all over the place. No, you got to look out. you got to look down the road. you got to look out at the, at the horizon and that's what's going to lock you in and keep you heading in the right direction. It's the same way for us. we got to keep our eyes locked on that eternal horizon and that's what's going to put, it's what's going to keep us going in the right direction and put the things of, of daily life into perspective. Some people worry, well, if I'm too focused on heaven, I'm not going to be of any earthly good. C.S. Lewis comments on this in Mere Christianity. He says, actually, if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have ceased, large, largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So here's a discussion question I thought I might throw out and see if you guys had any thoughts on this question. How might fixing our hope on Christ's return bring about a positive effect in our daily lives? What do you think? How might fixing our hope on Christ's return bring about a positive effect in our daily lives. Anybody have a thought on that? I should have warned you guys I was going to do a discussion question. <laughs> yeah, Crystal. Or I just talk loud? Yeah, I just talk loud. If you, if you can. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it it helps us focus on Christ. It 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 just has a calming effect on our anxieties because we know, you know, bad things might happen today or tomorrow, but I know in the long run I'm gonna be just fine. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Like, I don't really like my job that much, but man, the job is going to be Yeah. Like, having all the aches and pains in this life kind of sucks, but then in heaven, we're not going to have to worry about that. So it just brings a lot more joy. It's like being like, man, God's promising us something that's great. Yeah, it makes the little annoying, painful things of each day, it just reveals how temporary they are. And um, it helps us to put up with those because we know that something so much better is coming so much sooner. Yeah, Isaac. I think knowing that he's coming back and not just that he's some dude in the book makes me really want to know him before he comes back. Mm. See him and him be like, I don't know who you are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Man, good point. You know, if, if this is going to be an eternal relationship with the greatest being, the closest love relationship we'll ever have, then it makes us want to spend time growing that relationship now because we know that, you know, this is going to be an eternal relationship. And we don't want to just really start getting to know him for the first time when he returns, but we want it to be like, Lord Jesus, come 
please quickly, please come back, Lord. And uh, eagerly waiting to his, for his return and embracing him when he comes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the more real heaven seems, the more excited I get about it. Um, this is why it's great to read about heaven. And the more I want other people to be there with me, to join, to join me there. And I don't, I don't have to worry about getting all that I can out of this life. Okay, and that's actually going to be the way to get all, the best out of this life anyway, is to live for the next life, as, as Lewis is talking about here. Good. Yeah, you know, um, this woman here is Florence Shadwick, a real great, um, world-famous, record-setting uh, female swimmer from the 1950s. And, um, you know, she's the first woman to swim, you know, back and forth across the English Channel. And in 1952, she went out to Catalina Island off the coast of California, and she was going to become the first woman to swim from that island to California. And uh, it was a very, very foggy day. She could barely see the boat that was next to her. And um, her mom was in the boat, her team was in the boat, and she was swimming and swimming and swimming, and she was so exhausted and so cold, she swam for 15 hours toward California. At one point, she tried to stop, she tried to quit. Her mom was like, honey, you got to keep going, you can do it, you can do it. And so finally, completely exhausted, she gave up and said, I'm done. She tapped out, she climbed into the boat. When she climbed in, she was less than a half a mile from the shore. Wouldn't have been much longer swimming. And um, she was in a press conference later, and they asked her about that. And she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And that's the effect that a focus on heaven has. You know, if we're just in the fog, we don't know where we're headed, the, the pain in this life, it's hard to endure. We want to tap out. But if we're like, oh, I'm almost there. I'm only a half a mile. If I could just see the shore, I could swim forever. That's the effect that this will have on us. And so Peter says, because you, you live a completely different life, you're not headed for death, as we talked about last week, eternal oblivion, something we're all terrified of. No, you're headed for heaven. You're headed for this awesome place where you finally get to be fully the real you and live the way God intended you to live. And so that should produce a different sort of life. You know, this is why we, we live differently. It's because we have a different hope. We have a different destination, a different way of evaluating time, where this life is a blip on the face of eternity. Peter also tells us Christians should be unique. We should be different, holy, as it says, because we have a unique, different, holy God. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written in the Old Testament, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's God speaking there. So twice here it calls God the Holy One. Actually, the second one, God calls himself the Holy One, the different one. Like the different one who called you, be different yourselves also in all your behavior. So because God is so different, you know, it's, it's really hard for us to even grasp what God is like. God is so different from us. He says, I am God and there is no other. You know, human beings, we make up all kinds of different gods, all kinds of made up religions. God says, those are all made up. Those are all make believe. I'm the only one. And God is so different. He's so big. He's so 
multifaceted that it's hard to even describe him to a finite mind like us. Um, you know, finite humans, it, it's hard to wrap our minds around what God is like. And so, you know, Scripture uses lots of different images to describe what God is like and the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. And, you know, God is so different that he's hard to describe that Peter here, he, he's going to give us three different pictures of what God is like, and he's going to show how those contribute to our differentness, God's differentness contributing to our differentness. And one he talks about here is he says, God's our father. He calls us obedient children. He calls God our father twice in this passage, actually. God is father. You know, this, this speaks to the love of God. This speaks to the tenderness of God, the, the close relationship that God wants with us. This is uh, maybe the most common picture of God used in Scripture um, because it says God is love. And um, I know for some of us, um, we don't have very good images that come to mind when the word father comes up. We either didn't have a dad or our dad was pretty awful to us um, or he just simply was absent. I'm sorry that that's what you had to experience. But what Scripture tells us is that uh, even the best fathers cannot come close to the loving nature of God the Father. And even people I've talked to who had awful fathers or no father, they knew deep down in their heart of hearts, that is not what a father is supposed to be like. I was, there's a longing for father in our hearts that can only be met by God. And I bet you that even if your father was awful, I bet you, you a lot of people can still remember back to a time when they wanted a relationship with that father, when they longed for that father's approval, when they wanted, when they reached out to that father before your heart was ripped out, torn apart. And yet, this longing, you know, children want the approval of the father. You know, I have kids. I see this in my own kids. They, they want my approval. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. They want to be close to me. In fact, that's something that's sort of annoying for, for new parents of younger kids is how much the kid wants them. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. There's something in the heart of a child, and when there's a close, loving relationship, you want to do what dad wants. You want to be close to dad. That's the picture that Peter is painting here. He says, if we really understood the incredible privilege that we have, that God is now our Father because of what Christ has done. We're just going to want to do what He wants. We're going to want to please Him. We're going to look to Him for His approval. We're going to look to Him for our identity to tell us who we really are. And that, how could that not result in us living different kinds of lives in a world where people are so insecure and so desperate for affirmation and they don't know which end is up? We know we got our loving Father. And, and honestly, closeness in our relationship with God, one of the great ways to do that is not to try to strum up this closeness from within, but just to think about the Father love of Father God and how much He loves us and how much He, he reaches down to us as children. And so Peter says, you, you guys are His kids. And I know as, as His kids, you want to do what He wants you to do. But... On the other hand, he's not just our loving father. He's the judge. It says in the very next verse, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. So your dad also happens to be the judge of all mankind, is what he says. And he says, if that's the case, you need to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And, and 
the translation of that word is fear. You read about the fear of the Lord. It makes it sound like we're supposed to be terrified of God, like he's some terrible person who could just go off on us at any time. No, First um, John 4, 18 says, perfect love drives out fear. So it, it's, it's not that kind of fear. No, reverence would probably be a better term here. The reverence of God. I mean, he is the almighty, the all-powerful. We need to have a certain amount of respect for who we're dealing with here. He's not like our pet, you know, poodle or something like that. No, he's, he's, the great, he's the great one. He's the mighty one. And he says he impartially judges. He is a just judge. And so if God, as, as Father, speaks to his love and the closeness he wants, God as judge speaks to his righteousness and his justice. And that's another aspect of God's character that we cannot overlook. We don't want to overemphasize either of these pictures of God. Yeah, God will judge everyone. It says right here. He will judge, impartially judges according to each one's work. And there's really two main judgments that we need to think about regarding the end of this era, end of this age. One is God has to make a judgment on this question. Where will you spend eternity? With God or apart from God? And what he's going to ask is, have you ever done anything wrong? Have you ever fallen short of the glory of God? And the answer to that question, there's two answers to that question. Have you ever done anything wrong? And they both start with the word yes. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The first one says yes, period. They have no excuse. They have no way out. And God says the wages of sin is death. You spend eternity apart from me. The other answer says yes, but I've trusted in Christ. I've placed my eternal destiny in his hands. He's the innocent one. My sins fall on him. He died for me. And so as a result, I am declared righteous and I get to spend eternity with God and nothing and no one can take that away from me. And so where will you spend eternity? That really boils down to a question of how do you stand with regard to Christ? The other question, there is a judgment for Christians, but it's not on whether they'll, they'll get to go to heaven or not. It is God takes all the bad things Christians have ever done, and he's like, well, I put those on Christ, so those, we take those out of the way. Now, the good things that you've done for me, to advance my kingdom, to advance my work, he says, you'll be rewarded for that. And those rewards can never be taken from you. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven, or nobody can take them away, uh, nobody can take them away from you once they're laid up in heaven. And so, you know, the Apostle Paul, if you read his writings, over and over again, he talks about how motivated he is because he's like, I want to keep my eyes on the prize. I want rewards in heaven. And that is a good motivation. It's, it's used a lot in scripture. And so understanding God as our judge, as Christians, you know, that's going to that's gonna motivate us. We're going to want to get a good evaluation. And so we're going to want to please him. We're going to want to build on his, the foundation that's been laid here in, in the church. And so that's going to lead to us living different lives as well, if we understand God as our judge. But a third and final picture that Peter lays out here is God is our redeemer. He says, you know that you weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And this might be, I don't know, this might be the most unique thing about God. God is our redeemer. What kind of a God redeems his people? Uh, Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter, she, she talks about this word redeemer, this concept of redemption. It actually has a background that relates to ancient 
Greco-Roman slavery and ancient Greco-Roman worship. Here's what she says. You know, people can end up in slavery for a whole number of different reasons in the ancient world. Sometimes, um, you know, it was things that you did that landed you in so much debt you had to sell yourself into slavery. Sometimes there were other reasons why you could end up as a slave, but it was a, a really pitiful, um, terrible position to be in. But they provided a way to get out of slavery. You could buy your way out of slavery, and this buying your way out of slavery was called redemption. She says, the slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or a goddess. Yeah, so sometimes the slave could work to earn enough money to buy their own freedom. Sometimes just somebody would come in from the outside and they would pay for the slave's freedom. But you didn't pay directly to the owner. You went to the local deity, the local temple, and you deposited the money there. You're paying the God for the slave's freedom. Then that money, it would go into the temple treasury the local, you know, pagan priests, they would take a little cut, you know, 10% or whatever. And then they would take the rest of the money and they would hand it to the slave's owner, like a gift from the god or goddess. It was thought that the god or goddess was buying the slave, was buying their freedom. And so the former slave would then be free in the eyes of his former owner and society, but they would still be considered a slave of the god or goddess. And so think about this background for purchasing slaves out of slavery. And think about the implications for what God has done for us. You know, in, in, the, in the ancient world, the money went, you know, was paid by someone else to the so-called God. And then the money went from there to the slave owner and then the person was free. But in this case, it was not someone else that paid for our redemption. It was not someone else that bought us out of slavery. It was the God himself God is the one who paid for our redemption. And he did not buy it with things like silver or gold. I couldn't buy it. No, he said, you were bought with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so this, this payment was made for our freedom. And then we're set free. But like, like in the ancient world, you were then viewed to be, I belong to this God now, this God or goddess. And that's the way the early Christians saw themselves. They were purchased, their freedom was purchased by God himself. And they said, now I belong to the God who set me free, to the one who actually purchased me. And so God in this case, I mean, what kind of a God? Religion is about me doing something for God so God will do something for me. Christianity, the one true God, he said, no, you can't, you can't do anything for me to buy your freedom, to get you out of this mess you're in. No, I'm going to do something for you. Grace, I'm giving to you. I am sending my one and only son, so whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And this is why over and over again, Paul will introduce himself, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, bond slaves of God. That's just how they talked about themselves. And so if you understood that, how could that not make a difference in the way that you lived? A unique God, the Redeemer God. This is where the, God, the, the love of Father God and the justice of God the judge meet in the redemption that God provided through Christ. How could that not make a difference in the way that we live? How could we not be the happiest, most grateful people in the world with a God like that, who loves us like that? 
Yeah, he said he redeemed us from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. We were living a life that was headed nowhere. We were headed for disaster. And God rescued us out of that. He plucked us out of there with the blood of Christ. Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. He's our Father, He's our Judge, and He's our Redeemer. He's, he's the totally unique God, and we, we should be different because He's different. Finally, Peter says, He's given us a unique identifier. Yes, we live in a unique era. Yes, we're headed for a unique destination. We serve a unique and holy and different God. And he's given us a unique mark, the mark of love. Peter says, since you've in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Yes, you've purified your souls. There's our holy word again, right? You've made, your soul has been made pure. When you received Christ... That's the obedience to the truth we talked about last time. When you put your faith in Christ, you were purified. And that new, pure you is now capable of love in a new way. And he says, because that's true, fervently love one another from the heart. Because you're different now, be different when it comes to love. This is the heart of the holiness that God wants for us. Jesus told his disciples, the unique mark of the Christian is this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the unique mark of the Christian. That is the the thing we should be known for, not for being weird or judgmental or hypocritical or corny. No, we should be known for the way that we love one another. Because scripture says God is love. God is love. That is at the heart of who God is. And we spend time with a God who is love. That should make us loving people. And so the question I'll leave us with is this. What impression will we leave on the world? What impression will we leave on our neighbors? What is the impression that people will get when they walk into one of our home churches, when they walk into a meeting like this? I remember the impression I had the first time I walked into a home church. I remember just sitting around thinking, these people seem so happy. And after the meeting, people came up to me. They started asking me questions. They they took an interest in my life. But then I also looked around and I saw them taking an interest in each other's lives, talking to one another, investing in one another, loving one another. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what kind of a community is this? That was the impression it made on me. That is the impression God wants us to leave. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, we spent the past, I don't know, year and a half up until a couple of months ago, social distancing, trying to stay away because this pandemic, you know, mental health everywhere was plummeting for people. Relation, people were so lonely. Relationships were drying up. But our home church, and I know a lot of you guys were in groups like this as well, we worked so hard to get together. We worked so hard to spend time together. You know, we would just be gathering together. It didn't matter what the temperature was. 90 degrees, humid. We're sitting out on the deck. I'm just sticking to this this old couch that I trash picked and stuck on my deck. You know, and then it gets into wintertime. And it's like 
20 below zero. And here we are, we're bundled up and we're sitting out and we're talking to each other. And I remember just thinking like, you know, it's winter time and I have, I have like a deck that was covered and we did have like a sheet of plastic to separate us from the outside world and, and a heater. So it wasn't completely freezing on there. Um, but I remember just night after night being out there and just thinking, what do my neighbors think of us? <laughs> Here we are, we got like some old janky floor lamps out there. We're sitting out there in our coats and we've got a group of 10 or 12 or 15 people just out there laughing in the cold January night. <laughs> and I was like, are they like, are they judging us? Are they mad at us? Um, they're not leaving their house. Um, but I just thought, you know, when I, when I would think about this and, I, and I, would, I would talk to God about it, I would just be like, God, I pray that the thing that you would impress upon them is, wow, those guys really love each other. Those guys are working so hard just to sit six feet from another person, no matter what the weather, and they are fighting for their relationships. And that is the impression that I want to leave, no matter what comes at us, that we are the kind of people that fight for relationships, that fight for love. And I think God is pleased. God is pleased with what we're doing here. So... That is what we got on being different. Yes, God, you're just so different from us, and it's, it's hard to even wrap our minds around that. Thanks for these different pictures you give us of what you're like and uh, the way you want to relate to us, God. Thank you, too, just th- that you've, you've given us so much, Lord. You've given us so much knowledge and understanding into what you're doing, God, and uh, these were things that the prophets longed to look into, that the angels longed to look into, and here we are living it, Lord. We're the recipients of your grace and your love. I'm thankful, too, that you purchased us out of slavery, God, and I pray for anyone here tonight who has not um, received that payment from Christ on their behalf, Lord. I pray that they would call out to him and that they would place their trust in him, that they would receive the payment that he's offering up, Lord, not silver or gold, but precious blood, God, and that um, they would come into that relationship with you and experience your love and then learn from you how to love other people. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.